What is it about? Computational communication science? Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast What is it about computational communication science? Today's episode is about how to measure human behavior. I am Emma Shadomahidi. I'm an assistant professor for computational communication science at Technische Universität Ilmenau in Germany. Hi, my name is Mario Heim. I'm professor for communication science, especially computational communication science at LMU Munich in Germany. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor David Lazar with us today. Hi, David. Hello. Really good to be on. Great to have you. Um, I'll just briefly introduce you, although I'm pretty sure that most of our listeners are very familiar with you and your work. Um, you're a political scientist by training and um, you're now a professor, distinguished professor of political science and computer sciences at, at Northeastern University in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And you're among the leading scholars on misinformation and computational social science. And I guess the main reason why so many of our listeners know you is because you co-authored lots and lots and lots of scientific articles, among of which are one of the most influential perspective piece in science from 2009 entitled Computational Social Science. You followed that up a little later with, with an updated version in 2021 published in Nature. Um, and you describe computational social science as an emerging field to, to leverage coding, software and digital technologies to model, simulate and analyze social phenomena. So in a way, you're kind of one of the founding fathers of this discipline that is computational social science, computational communication science. But you still are a political scientist by training. And I wonder how did it come about that you became interested in the field of computer science and then computational social science? Sure. Well, my advisor from back when was uh, Bob Axelrod at the University of Michigan, um, who did a lot of early work around computational approaches to studying social science, social phenomena, politics, in particular, very famous for his work on evolution of cooperation, but also things like cognitive maps and so on. So really sort of set me on the path of thinking about social phenomena as being more complex than, you know, was typically trained in uh, to social scientists uh, way back when, so. And according to that, uh, today we wanted to talk about challenges in measuring human behavior. So I would start with the general question, why is it so complicated to measure human behavior? And what does it even mean? Yeah, so it's complicated because uh, humans are complicated, right? So Uh, there are many ways to do things. And sometimes things that look the same are different and sometimes things that look different are the same. So we're talking right now over Zoom and also via another platform I can't even quite describe. Um, and, and those are sort of equivalent. And then, uh, but then, you know, we could have done it on another platform and those would be functionally equivalent things, but they would be captured in different places. Um, and on the other hand, you know, there are, we're having this sort of professional discussion and so on, which is a very particular kind of phenomena socially. Um, and then other people 
are, you know, having like communications using the same media to buy stuff or talk to family or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so those are interpersonal communications, but those are very different kinds of interpersonal communication. It matters that it's voice with, you know, right now it's going to be on the podcast, just voice. But I actually, for you listeners out there, three of us can actually see each other right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually gesturing with my hands and semantically, yeah. actually what you're experiencing on the podcast will be a little bit different and what Mario and uh, Emisha are experiencing because they can see me gesticulating. They see the background of my messy office. And so, you know, all these may be consequential in terms of what's being communicated. And yet, ultimately, when it gets nicely edited into the podcast, it um, a lot of those elements will sort of disappear. And so all that just gets a, the complexity of just this interaction and how it gets recorded and what gets captured mm-hmm. and what doesn't get captured. Yeah, well, it's complicated. <laughs> that's that's uh, how I would summarize it into a few words. It's very complicated because human behavior is so complex. So normally measuring human behavior is part of the scientific process. And obviously the question is, how does this measurement fit into the scientific process and which types of data can we derive from that? Yeah, and I think that gets to a key challenge that we often confront in computational social science, which is often we're using, not always, but often we're using found data of a sort and repurposing them. And so the challenge with scientific measurement is that it should always be grounded in what matters, usually if you're in a theoretical framework or sometimes in terms of real-world phenomena. And if you're starting with found data, then you have the the challenge of retrofitting those data to the theory that you're or phenomena that you care about. And so in that is maybe certain things are impossible, there may be certain distortions, um, which isn't to say even with, you know, other kinds of measures that there aren't problems. Obviously, when you have like standard survey surveys um, and you ask people questions, you know, how to interpret what people's responses has a lot of mushiness, right? But at least at least social sciences have been wrestling for 70 years or so with how to how to deal with the messiness of survey responses, although not always successfully. You know, we're we're still wrestling with how to like repurpose tweets into something that's meaningful. At the same time, tweets are changing or the social socio-technical phenomena are changing so rapidly. We if we like figure out in 70 years, here's the best way to use tweets, well, you know, Twitter, certainly if it's around, it's going to look extremely uh, different in 70 years. We won't be calling them tweets. We'll be calling them musks or something like that. But um, in any case, uh, thing that, no, that'll be next year. You know, things change so quickly. So that's an additional the dynamism. I mean, the real world changes uh, rapidly, but on, on, the, on the internet where a lot of this takes place, changes even more rapidly. That's another layer of problems. So there's this repurposing challenge or recycling problem. And then there's the the challenge that it takes a while to learn how to do this. At the same time, all the nature of the measurements are rapidly uh, changing. And so it does create layers of challenges. So on the one hand, we have the social challenge that communication changes. You mentioned the podcast versus classic um, survey research problem. And on the other hand, we have this methodological steps ahead. What would you say? Where are we at at the moment in balancing these? Where is our potential currently? Where is maybe a lack of or a gap to to step into to move forward? I think you know we're we're still as a field uh, very much in our infancy, and at the same time uh, we confront 
the issue that a lot of our research is embedded in these very powerful socio-technical systems um, that are choosing what we see and maybe sort of biasing the science in, in certain ways that are consequential. And so I think it's easy to start with the kinds of gaps. And I'll, I mean, I think we, we're starting to do some nice work in terms of bridging let's say, old school social science phenomena measures with new school. And I think that there's been some useful innovations that way in terms of thinking about reliability and thinking about that theory measurement gap. I think we've come a long way in the last decade thinking about how we import some of these measurement issues into these newer kinds of data. There are, however, vast blind spots. So, for example, relatively little of our um, measurements are multi-platform. So, and a disproportionate share of what we do research on is just Twitter because it's open. Uh, but like there, we can see how the platforms likely play together. Like for example, uh, when you Google people, like if you Google my name, you'll also see tweets from me pop up and people might go to my tweets and like you look at Twitter data and you're like, why is this uh, tweet suddenly uh, trending? And maybe it's because of Google. We, we don't know. And so all these socio-technical systems within the internet, for example, are attached to each other and attached to other things like, you know, your smartphone knows where you are and that affects what you see and so on. So I think we have a challenge that we live multi-platform existences and most of our research is single platform. That's a problem. Another big thing we're missing is many measures on human attention. So for example, as I mentioned, Twitter is probably the most studied platform because it's the most accessible. But we actually don't access, we don't get to see some of the most important stuff on Twitter, which is what tweets people see, right? Like this may be like, there are a lot of people who just use Twitter to see stuff. And for them, they're just completely, they're almost invisible to us. Like we, A, we can't sit, tell if people who have accounts and who don't tweet, are they going on at all? Or are they, and Twitter knows this, Twitter has a data. They know, um, they know when people sign on, they know when people are scrolling. And so in principle, Twitter knows what people has been exposed to, but researchers don't. And there's almost no research out there that looks at what tweets that people have seen. I mean, really close to zero, maybe not zero, but close to zero. There's tons of research on, on Twitter, but like maybe well, less than 1% is seeing what people see on Twitter. Wow, that's a big gap. If I were to identify two things, again, focusing on the internet, it would be looking at number one, the multi-platform element, and number two, uh, what people are actually attending to. And, um, you know, there are lots of other things. We live so many digital traces around, and a lot of it is what Many of these are proprietary data for good reason. And the question then becomes, how do we create systems that might allow research, facilitate research, and yet maintain privacy and security of the data? How problematic would you say is it that this data that you refer to is currently owned, and not currently, has been owned for, since it came about, by well, commercial providers? Well, you know, the, it's problematic in as much as ownership comes with a certain kinds of control. We can imagine ownership by having different kinds of limits and what you can do with the data, what rights you have to the data. But it's a problem for two reasons. One is that these data are valuable scientifically and they could yield insights that are both good scientifically and good for humanity. But it's also then a problem because these owners of the data and controllers of the data 
are consequential actors, very consequential actors in a, in a way that has little precedent in terms of their global importance. And yet much of what's going on in those platforms is invisible and they get to control what is visible. And you can see how there's a bit of a conflict of interest there in terms of, you know, creating accountability for these platforms and these companies. At the same time, they control how much accountability or how much visibility there is into what they're doing. That's not tenable for a democracy, right? That's not desirable. Um, and uh, it does create these massive issues of accountability. And then that gets amplified by the fact that these are global systems, and which creates like lots of local asymmetries and ways that in many ways that these companies have more, more power over communications in certain countries than do local policymakers. Now, in some places, and now in some ways, and this poses an interesting challenge uh, as well as to think about like how this interplays with democracy and non-democracy. I mean, these, these systems are used in non-democratic places and could be systems of control as well. And so that does create an, an additional layer. It's not just about companies, but the intertwining in some places of companies and government. And so there's a whole set of layers of problems here in terms of accountability and that government and governance in this world is very much nationally focused, and yet we have these incredible global communication infrastructures. You interestingly already mentioned that individuals uh, might have a huge role. And very recently, so just for our listeners, uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter, which obviously poses the question how this platform will change. But for researchers as well, the question arises: what happens with my projects? So if they are in a data gathering process, what I have to admit I am, obviously, this is a hard question. So what will be in two months, or three months or half a year? Um, and this is, of course, as well, a problem in uh, this data ownership belonging to companies or individual discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think how many researchers out there are stressed out right now who are studying yes. Twitter, right? Yes. Like, I'm like, just incredibly distressed because like, well, maybe six months from now, they're like, all right, we're pressing the red button and everything, all data collection ceases, right? Totally plausible. And, you know, what would we do? We'd be like knocking their... Please, please let us <laughs> yes. I mean, like, it's just not, it's, it's, um, it's very distressing, right? Yes. Even if you succeed, you feel like you're just skating on very thin ice all the time. So one, one approach to that, basically, if we put it into global terms, the European approach is a very legal one, um, where policymakers force platforms of a certain size to comply with academic requests. What do you as based researcher think about that? I think that within the proper framework, that could be a very good thing, right? The proper framework has to be like, how do we guarantee the integrity of the data, both the scientific integrity, like, are they giving you good data, um, as well as the privacy and security of the data? That is, how do you facilitate research on the data, again, while guaranteeing the privacy of the people who are represented in the data? I haven't quite got, I think all of this is very much in process, even in Europe, yes. uh, in terms of how these things are managed. In the US, there are elements of legislation that have been floating around about how to facilitate access to data. But like, um, I don't think we're, we're not as far along as Europe, but like even Europe isn't that far along in terms of really solving the hardest problems. That is, it's, it's one thing I can say conceptually. 
companies should open their doors to researchers who want to study them and so on. And then when you get down to the practical details, you're like, well, that's hard for them to do right. Like, I'm not that sympathetic with Facebook or Google, et cetera. But, you know, I, I, I do see that's a tough problem. And there are a lot of ways that could go wrong. Like I said, I don't, my sense is that Europe hasn't like solved that problem. They've agreed on the principle which I think we can all sort of say, yes, that's a good thing. I mean, I'd say, yeah, that's awesome. But then whether the, the implementation is really, really hard. That's a great point you mentioned here. Also, since Elon Musk's buying of Twitter was announced, he also announced that he will put it, make it open source. I just stumbled over this tweet series. We're back on Twitter here by Dean Freeland, also a computational social scientist, who said what will happen when Twitter is made open source. Then Twitter complies with uh, legislative requests, probably. But do scholars have the equipment and the resources to deal with that then we are not computer scientists by training not all of us are though so do we need to adjust our curricula are we to adjust with thousands and millions of lines of source code or where will this from your point of view go well you know it's hard for me to fully engage with what musk is proposing i don't even know what it means to open source uh, twitter i think that no doubt it would pose challenges for researchers and i do think that part of what we confront as social scientists is that there may be size for certain kinds of data collection there may be sizable fixed costs to getting the data you want and a certain skill set that has not been typical in the social sciences and that we need to start thinking of certain shared goods that are high fixed costs, low marginal costs in terms of research output. And traditionally, the social sciences have not been built for that with a few exceptions, right? Like I think that there are, like in the US, we have these big regular surveys that are done, like the American National Election Study and so on, which has been you know, regularly done since I think the late 1940s. And that's an amazing resource that has spurred an incredible number of papers in political science. And that's because it was recognized there was a sort of fixed cost there of doing the survey and that this would be foundational for understanding politics and communication and so on. But I do think that we need to build so similar structures to also deal with the transitions that we see in the platforms. Like, you know, it, what we don't, what's not good is to say, oh, there are a thousand, say, computational com researchers out there Twitter changes stuff and then we all frantically like, you know, start working with our own little code bases and data collections, right? Which is basically the status. And uh, what we really need is like sort of some shared ways of, and, and there's some element where code gets shared and so on, but like, that's not enough. Like there needs to be people whose job it is to solve these problems when things change on a platform or facilitate data collection. And indeed, I should note that I, I am uh, leading a, a big NSF-funded uh, project to do something like that around creating a multi-platform kind of data collection that's centered around volunteers who allow us through privacy with security and privacy guarantees to track what they're doing online and to track what platforms are doing in return. And so we're launching data collection this August. You know, it's a very sizable NSF grant. And indeed, I hope I'm actually going to be on sabbatical in Europe in the fall and some Europeans who would be interested in taking our engineering, but then redeploy it in European contexts uh, to get volunteers in Europe that, you know, are knowledgeable about 
European politics and European issues and, and also European legal frameworks, but, but then taking like our tracking uh, software, our privacy and ethical, adapt some of our privacy and ethical framework and so on. And so my hope is that in a few years, we have some of the tools, some of these large fixed costs where we have a team that's doing the engineering, that we have sort of the collective that's like, here are the survey questions we should append to people who volunteer their data to say, let's get some basic demographics and political questions and so on, um, that that could then be shared widely and the data provided widely and yet still, again, providing those privacy guarantees to participants, to the volunteers. I guess there are similar efforts here in, in Europe as well to come up with such infrastructure. And I'm pretty sure you'll run into open doors when we'll publish this episode. You mentioned ethics, and I want to come back to that um, for a second. How balanced is the understanding of ethics when we as academics look into this kind of tracking research? And for example, companies like Musk's Twitter or also the others look at it. I think there are a few dimensions there, right? So I think, you know, with companies, the objective is in, in principle, you, you know, as a user, you sign this terms of service, which I think the vast majority of people don't read uh, or couldn't fully understand. And then those data can be deployed subject to legal constraints in ways that help the company. Now, you know, sometimes that's helping the individual, sometimes it's not. But most of the research then is deployed around like, how do we maintain people's engagement on the platform and get people to click on ads? What are the things that are predictive? What will, um, in terms of people's experiences that will achieve, you know, engagement and promote adver you know, advertisers' interests and so on, or advertiser dollars. And so there's a, a certain set of objectives there around which then you know, it's not clear that there's been at all a sort of well-developed ethical framework around what are the lines to be drawn about what should and should not be done with data, right? So for, for example, and we could think of many examples, right? I mean, obviously, first of all, there's just a lot of questions about like what data can flow outside of companies and be resold, especially in the US context. I think they're, they're more restriction in the European context. And so there's certainly a big market in uh, reselling data about people. But then even, um, for example, one, I, I studied misinformation. And one of the things I've studied is um, looking at apricot seeds as a cure for cancer right and which is it's not for listeners don't <laughs> it does not cure cancer i don't want to propagate misinformation here but you know if you go to amazon you'll see the apricot seeds get very highly rated for curing cancer uh, by users in their reviews that's um and and they aren't like working to clean up that misinformation reviews because that's not like part of their Uh, mission. And then you even see, let's say, when you search on, or at times when I've searched on, on Google, because uh, I, again, are playing around with different things, you'll see an ad from Amazon promoting, keying in on like cancer and apricot seeds that takes you directly to that good because the machine learning at Amazon has learned that posting ads that key in on cancer and apricot seeds will take you to this product, which is essentially, you know, amplifying this misinformation campaign, but completely accidentally. 
And so the question then becomes is like, what should be, how much should companies like Amazon invest in to try to not sell some of their goods? Because in fact, they're, they've created these vectors in terms of reviews for misinformation. And it's not at all clear that that sort of, that it doesn't seem well aligned with their corporate interests or corporate activities. And so that, you know, there is lots of research going on at a place like Amazon. I don't think it's aimed at that target. It's aimed at like, how do we extract dollars from people? And even if it means selling them a, a good that will, you know, that they think will cure their cancer and will not. And now on the scientific side, I mean, there is a mixed history in terms of science and ethics, right? Because like one can point to many examples of historically in the U.S., of research, and I'm sure not just in the U.S., but I'm more familiar with the U.S. examples uh, mm -hmm. of research that, for example, did not take appropriate care of the subjects or participants in that research and harmed them, uh, in part because, like, the scientist also has a goal there, of perhaps creating knowledge, getting glory for, you know, for a paper in a prominent place, such as glory is in academia. And that's not necessarily the interest uh, of the participants. And so that, then the question is, how do we ethically then manage the both the interests in creating scientific knowledge that will be good for humanity, one hopes on average, and at the same time, guard the interests of the subjects of research and the issue, and there are a multitude of issues that, that computational social science raises in a way that some of which are novel and some of which are not novel. You know, the, I mean, certainly some of the novel ones are just things around the scale of data collection. Um, the fact that there is this possibility of repurposed data that people don't realize could be used for research and ha they haven't consented to, but it's sort of publicly available. And so like, you know, how many people on Twitter are thinking, huh, my tweet could be used for research? Uh, the answer is, you know, a very tiny fraction. <laughs> and most of them are the researchers themselves, right? And so how do we think about consent in that setting? Or, uh, But there are a lot of ways when you act out in public that you shouldn't necessarily have a strong expectation of privacy. Like, you know, if I turn the light on outside, there are a few more photons that will go up that satellite will detect to make inferences about, like, you know, um, economic activity in the neighborhood or that kind of thing. And so should I expect privacy with respect to the outdoor light that I turn on? And the answer is probably not. And one could make similar arguments about Twitter, but then, you know, there's a lot that people may not even realize that when they say things on Twitter may then allow certain kinds of inferences about that. I think many of these issues and, and other issues around spillover, information spillover, so like when I say something or, or do something, it may offer insights about people I'm connected with because we know from the principle of homophily that people hang out with those similar to themselves, that when I do something, it tells you something about the people I'm connected with. Uh, but a lot of that has been out there in social science for a long time. It's just not been confronted. Like when I answer in a survey, I'm a, I'm a certain political party. You could say with a certain degree of reliability that my spouse is of the same political party because spouses tend to be the same political party. And so the issue of informational spillover, for example, has always been there, but it's rarely been confronted as an ethical issue because there really isn't, you know, it, it, the practical import of that has generally mm -hmm. been pretty small. So... Oh my God, you mentioned a lot of aspects and I feel like we need, well, I mean, of course, better data access, right? T training in methodologies if you want to analyze whole Twitter and obviously training in ethics if you want to do this in a good way, maybe even training in theory or developing new theories if we 
want really to find answers, include multi-platform research, right? Be able maybe to measure media use better, what is actually our central variable, but you are right, often we measure how often people tweet it and do not measure what they actually saw. So do you think uh, computational social sciences, uh, this is a way to a new discipline? That's a good question. I think maybe we should think of disciplines in a different way in the 21st century as being less siloed because like, the, you know, the computational social science really crosses many existing disciplines. And I think that there are some common issues confronted, like if you're interested in image data, right? Like at some levels, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, an economist or a political scientist or a comm scholar. At another level, it does because the phenomena you might be interested in would be different. So I think it's somewhat more than just thinking in the way that methods generally sort of cross disciplines. Because I think that the, these new kinds of data also support the development of new paradigms around the complexity of human behavior. And so in that sense, I think that there is a center there, an organizing principle that may be a you know, cross-disciplinary discipline. Like there, there may be a coherence there, but that it, it may be that we should think of um, disciplines as really being, rather than silos, as being matrices. And that computational social science is something that is cross-cutting and in some ways maybe integrative of different disciplines, but then bringing in sort of novel insights around the complexity of human behavior, thinking of, of space and time in ways that will hopefully have be paradigm shifting in a way that then explodes across different social sciences. And we already share a set of computational methods. We probably should work more toward more integrative theory building. I'm just wondering, given the current global bias of the available data that is very US originated, and then we have differences in how we legally see them, isn't that kind of an inherent bias in how we proceed in this field? Um, we usually we talked about on this podcast before about the weird bias in psychology for white, educated, industrialized rich and uh, democratic samples. Isn't that something alike that we are now building this new matrix discipline based on biased grounds? I'm afraid that computational social science shares many of the challenges and flaws of global society, which is that resources are unevenly distributed. And so science then similarly gets unevenly developed, right? I think that There needs to be more great social science. I think there is some, but there needs to be more in like India and Indonesia and Malaysia. And yet, and there is, but like there isn't enough, right? Relative to the resources, let's say in the US and Europe. Um, I think as a field, we need to think about how do we better create global partnerships to facilitate uh, global uh, research. I do think there's that possibility because I do think that You know, whether you like it or not, we're all, you know, we're unevenly on the internet and we're unevenly uh, captured in these systems, but that even the, um, and I think this is true globally, it's also true, I think, locally when we look at, let's say, everything you just said globally is also true to some extent if we look at the affluent versus the marginal within any of our own societies in terms of who gets studied and who gets resources. But, you know, one of the great things about large-scale data is that, you have viable samples of the marginalized and that they may be more accessible in the data. And so there is a question of like how we facilitate science in those areas. 
and at the same time, respect and build local knowledge and respect local customs and understandings of what let's say privacy intrusions are because that's a very that's a very culturally embedded thing and so um, I mean what would not be desirable would be let's study all the bits in India or something like that what would be good would be working on collaborating with researchers in India as an ex- take India as an example and India of course does have an, an amazing sort of technological infrastructure and amazing set of scholars there. And so maybe even India isn't isn't even a great example, but they are a place where actually there would be the possibility to build things and partnerships uh, locally. And I think that that's true in much of the world. And I think it's incumbent on on institutions in the U.S. and in Europe and more affluent places to think about how to approach these things in a way that is our proper partnerships and um, which is hard, but like, you know, it don't solve the problem by saying, well, we're not going to do that. The question is, how do you do that? Well, can open science be a way to mitigate these problems? I think open science generally has the potential, I think, and this gets back to what I was saying about fixed costs and building capacity. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is an issue that if research is expensive, and it has large fixed costs, that there will be some researchers who can scale those fixed costs and produce stuff within, like my lab has built lots of resources, for example, which has been productive for people in my lab. But it would be far better to create those resources in a way that a lot of people outside of my lab could access those at low cost. And so like that, and that gets to exactly the point of open science, some of which is how do you build those big resources? Another of which is how do we, you know, how do we take something that one group has done and open it up to others all at the same time dealing with all this privacy and security issues, which is hard because that then there aren't sort of established models. Or like, here's the way I do it so that it guarantees privacy. There isn't sort of like a cheap solution, like, you know, uh, for my lab to do this for things we've built. It's like, well, that would be more expensive than the actual product we built because we'd have to solve these massive problems. And so that again gets to like, even open science in these spaces requires actually investments in fixed costs that even exceed the wealthiest of research groups. And so we, we need to solve these things collectively. Thank you, David. This has been great to talk to you and to hear all of your perspectives and insights on this. And um, we hope you as listeners also got new ideas and new thoughts from this uh, conversation. Thank you very much. Terrific uh, to both of you. Terrific discussion. Terrific questions. So I really enjoyed this. Thank you, David. And thank you, our dear listeners, for listening to our podcast. If you have any ideas, suggestions or questions, for example, for future guests, please email us or reach out on Twitter, share the podcast with others and your thoughts and feedback with us. Hope to hear you next time. Goodbye. Bye bye. What is it about? Computational Communication Science?